Hello, I'm Raji Sohal. Welcome to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. I talked to a public policy prof who says we need better wages for municipal politicians in Canada if we want to attract better candidates for those posts. And Rachel Ann Snow came on to talk about the papal visit to Canada, which kicks off in Edmonton, and what it means for reconciliation in the country. But first... Hockey Canada has been found to use minor league registration fees for a fund that helped to pay for settlements of alleged sexual assault. Last week, it came out that Hockey Canada had built a multi-million dollar fund from minor league registration fees that helped to pay for settlements of alleged sexual assault. As the organization finds itself steeped in controversy surrounding that case, parents and minor league associations have a lot of questions of their own. One of the issues to emerge is the transparency of Hockey Canada's equity fund. What is that fund all about? Where's the money going? Teresa Bailey is the founder of Canadian Hockey Moms, which boasts over 40,000 members. She's also the author of the book, Hockey Moms, The Heart of the Game. Let's welcome her to the program. Good morning, Teresa. Hi there. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us so early on a Sunday morning. So when parents pay fees for their, say, 14 or 15-year-old in a high-performance system, are they told exactly where those fees go? Well, it would differ, differ in every organization, actually, because some fees would cover um, all of your extras, all of your tournaments, other fees have, other associations would have fundraising fees. So you would have a general idea of where the fees went and you always know that the insurance portion and the registration portion would be going to um, Hockey Canada to cover your insurance. But then the communication of what that looks like at Hockey Canada, that we don't know that. And then the communication of what the budget would look like within each team or each organization would be a little bit different. Okay, so a parent, for example, wouldn't get specifics on what the aspect uh, or which portion of what goes to Hockey Canada, where that would be divvied up and how that would be used. Is that what you're saying? Not necessarily. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay, so I guess a lot of people are wondering why don't, when that's the case, why don't parents question where the funds go? And and do you think do you think it's a parent's responsibility to have to do that? Well, I think it's it's a, a little bit of a complex um, answer because um, I think that parents assume that it's going to the right places to facilitate the ability of their kids to participate in hockey. There yeah. are lots of different things that are taken, taking place. Um, our communication, parents are, are directed to communicate with their association. So there's all, a bit of a hierarchy everywhere. And I'm speaking from an Ontario perspective. And I'm assuming that it would be similar in other cases. I've asked moms this, and it seems to lay out uh, in a similar way. But your first step would be your own executive. And um, I know that there have been instances where you're not encouraged to go further up to your local association, which would be a provincial or regional association. And why is that? And they would, uh, it's, it's just the way it's set up. It's, um, it, they tr- there has been a change, I've noticed, through my involvement with executives in um, in the last couple of years that they're saying that we're trying to be open and we're trying to listen to people. And I'm talking about at a regional or provincial level. However, the communication is always directed towards um, your, your executive and how that's dealt with depends on an individual executive and what it looks like moving forward depends on the relationship of 
what the leadership in an executive has with the association. Uh, in my experience, there is not a whole lot of communication from that level to directly to Hockey Canada. I see. You mentioned hierarchy there, which also suggests a certain degree of gatekeeping, I'd say. Um, in terms of pressing the executive, do you think that there's a culture of it being intimidating or gauche in some way to ask for that kind of accounting from the executive to press them on it? Is it discouraged? Uh, it, I I really do think it depends on where you are. I've been the president of a small association, and I think that we tried to do a good job around transparency there. I've been member, I've been an executive on other associations where I can say firsthand it is very strongly discouraged and there can be repercussions so that parents are very unlikely to speak up in some instances because parent cuts are a very real thing. And myself being here talking about this even, you know, you don't want to become that parent who is the one asking questions. And the only reason that I'm able to do that now is because I'm not directly attached to any minor hockey association in an executive level. And if you were, what would be the concern there? So you said that you wouldn't want to be that kind of a parent. Uh, uh, what would be the concern? Why, why wouldn't you want to be? You wouldn't want to be a parent who asks questions yeah. because... Um, you don't want to be the parent causing problems on a team. Right. The the um, repercussions come down to who is coaching, whether or not they're going to take your child. Volunteer positions are hard, right? Yes. Like there there are all sides of this. That's why I'm saying it's a complex problem because I'm telling you the very worst of it. But there are also a lot of good things that happen too. But there are um, there are coaches who take on these volunteer roles, and if you do have a challenging parent and it's not necessarily a justified reason, it can be a real energy drain for them and, and poor for the culture of the team. On the other side, it's, um, there can be really legitimate questions that need to be asked, and I'm not sure that people always understand the difference. I think hockey is a pretty homogeneous group, and, um, and asking change is hard in a structure like that. So I think it's a very complex issue and, and that needs to be looked at by asking more questions, as I, I think is happening now. Yeah. And do you think some parents might be concerned about being vocal for how it might come back to their own kid? Oh, th- yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. When we talk about parent cuts, that's what it, we mean. Your, your kid gets cut because you as a parent are a problem in the association. And that I would say, I think people would agree with me that that's a real thing. Mm-hmm. I realize you don't want to comment on the case, so that totally aside, how can an institution, do you think, that's misled or, or masked the, the purpose of funds it's collected, how can they fix their problem with, with that kind of deceit? Well, I think, you know, we hear about the, the, the funds that exist, and I think that, again, we have to ask more questions because from a risk management perspective, I would think that having a fund to pay some things that were not covered by um, not covered by insurance would make sense for the sustainability of an organization. Like there are things that might fall out around injuries or traveling to or from games, whatever it is. Okay. But I think that there needs to be more questions around accountability, how that's managed, what types of um, what types of events or issues can be covered, and who actually knows about that. Because I, for me, that's the issue. We didn't know that was happening. We don't really know um, what that looks like. There's, 
a little bit of information around what might be covered um, around those types of charges on uh, Hockey Canada website. But I, I think that there just needs to be more information around that. And that would be the first step. And I also do think that um, training at an executive level, like a minor hockey executive level, would be really important because I don't know that people always understand the responsibilities they're taking on. Um, you get all different people in those roles. Some are familiar with how to run associations and be open to feedback, and other people just aren't. So I think that's part of it too. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being with us this morning. My pleasure. Well, municipal elections are ahead of us in BC, so why don't folks seem excited to vote? Or is it that the candidates don't necessarily represent our interests? Well, whatever it is, according to Zachary Spicer, a professor at York in public policy, he says it's because potential candidates for the job are not being lured because of how much the gig pays. Spicer says if we want better municipal politicians, we should pay better wages. Zachary, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. All right, let's get the background from you, first of all, on what you see as the demands of being a municipal politician. What does that work entail? Well, there's there's sort of like the formal role, which is council meetings, committee meetings, um, stuff that we, you know, we can normally see our councillors doing stuff that's fairly visible, but there's also a ton of constituency work. So councillors are often dealing with everything from property standards issues to tree and forestry issues, uh, calls from people who you know, don't get their garbage picked up on time, stuff like that. That's a huge demand. But then there's also a ton of different events um, throughout the actual community. So uh, parades, uh, you know, um, uh, community fairs, stuff like this, stuff that we expect councillors to be uh, to be to be present at. So the job is quite demanding. Uh, it's 24 hours a day. It's um, and uh, they're often not really compensated for a lot of it. Okay, you you mentioned that there are a lot of these extra demands and that it's kind of a 24-7 job. I think a lot of people forget that, that uh, these municipal politicians have to follow the news very closely and what's happening and listening to their constituents, so it takes up every ounce of time. What are your reasons for saying that they currently, though, don't get paid enough? Why do you think the current compensation scheme isn't enough? Well, um, in a lot of places um, across Ontario, and I think it's probably fairly similar out in BC as well, um, most councillors are considered to be part-time. Uh, and a lot of them are receiving uh, a stipend as opposed to an actual salary. So in some cases, um, that could be as low as about $1,000 a month. Um, and even though they are kind of labeled uh, part-time, they're not really part-time because the job is not really a part-time job, even in some very small rural areas. So... Um, in some cases, um, they're not really able to sort of balance out the role that they're supposed to be doing as counselor with whatever other full-time role that they have. So what we're seeing is um, oftentimes um, the people who are taking on these sort of, uh, you know, air quote, part-time positions um, usually have, uh, you know, some other uh, means of earning money. So they're they're usually kind of independently wealthy. They're oftentimes retired. So it's kind of like you know, uh, a job that they do once you're, once you're retired. And so as a result, we're, we're getting a lot of homogeneity on a lot of these councils. So um, we're seeing councils uh, trend upwards in terms of age. So 
Um, in a survey across Ontario, we found that um, that the average age of a counselor is 60, um, and only 2% uh, uh, reported being a member of a visible ethnic group, right? So they tend to be white, they tend to be male, 75% are male, wow. uh, the average age is 60. So we're seeing um, a lot of similarities across the province of Ontario. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, in BC, we see that too. We see a lot of homogeneity there. We see a lot of retired folks. Um, And you mentioned independently wealthy. Okay. So what does that mean for constituents when those are the kinds of people that get elected? Well, um, it means that they're, um, that they're, they're often accessible. They can do the job, but um, it also means that they, they're bringing a certain type of perspective to the work that they're doing as a counselor. So some say that people who are retired or older white men don't have, um, you know, a spot on councils. They are part of the community as well. Um, but um, they're bringing a particular worldview, right? So uh, I think for a lot of us, we're asking, you know, where are, where are the women? Where are the parents of young children, right? Where are people from various um, uh, various professional backgrounds, doctors, nurses, teachers, uh, business people, right? Um, and so what, we're, what a lot of us are kind of thinking is that, well, you know, how would, how would the decisions that councils make change based upon the perspective of those who are filling those positions? So if we're, if we're only paying part-time wages, the only people who can really do the job that is demanding so much of their time on such a low amount of money um, are the ones who have, you know, a substantial income or who are already retired or don't have any other, um, any, anything else competing for their time, like a young family, right? Yeah, absolutely. So how much should they get paid? Well, that's, a, that's the question I don't really dive into in the, in the article that I wrote. And it's tough to say, but um, we could do a couple of different things here. One is that um, you could sort of set a base rate and then it could, um, it could climb based upon uh, wage increases for staff, right? So you could tie it to sort of, uh, to sort of wage, wage increases for staff and maybe getting 2 or 3% more per year. Um, the challenge is that uh, we have this sort of notion that, um, that we're unwilling to pay politicians more. So as a result, we're kind of stuck in this basis where um, there hasn't been a council composition review in some places in almost 20 years, right? Because a lot of councillors run on this sort of notion that they are uh, fiscally responsible, that, that your taxes won't go up, that you know, they're going to run, run the council like they would run a business or something like that. And as a result, that kind of keeps wages down. So I, what I would say is that we need to have a conversation about that. And there shouldn't necessarily be one wage across the province, per se, because, you know, there is a, you know, a, a much different, there is a kind of a spectrum of, um, of demands placed upon these folks based upon whether they're in a large city like Vancouver or or a small town or village or something along those lines. But um, we need to sort of, you know, have these conversations and we need to sort of set, I think, a regular way to, to sort of normally increase wages without having the politics involved. And that could be sort of tying it to, to cost of living or something along those lines. What about qualifications? I mean, sometimes we see people in these roles who just, they don't have the experience or education, uh, breadth of education to understand citizens' problems. Um, yeah, certainly. I mean, and, but but part of that is, uh, is you know, is who who is getting elected, right? So, I mean, uh, you know, if you're putting your name out there and voters think that you're 
the right person for for the job. We can't necessarily say that you aren't, right? Um, but I think one of the things that we can we can do around structuring uh, council pay is that is that that may actually open up possibilities of newer candidates coming forward, those who may have more experience or may have um, an educational background a little more suited to being a counselor, right? So I think by making the job a little bit more attractive, we can get new candidates involved um, who can present themselves to voters. And if voters agree, um, we could have, uh, you know, some, some significant turnover on, on, uh, on uh, councils, but we need people to put their names forward. And I think that for some people, when they, when they look at this and say $1,000 a month for, you know, to add 20, 30, 40 hours a week to my, to my workload, that's time I'm not spending with my kids or I can't spend at, at, at my full-time job. I just can't make that work. Um, if we're willing to pay a bit bit yeah. more, maybe they can restructure their work life a bit, right? And they can actually put their name forward. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective. Zachary Spicer, thanks for joining us this morning. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. The last papal visit to Canada was 20 years ago, but to visit an Indigenous community here, it's been 35 years. But today, Pope Francis will be in Edmonton for a welcome ceremony, and tomorrow he will meet with residential school survivors. What does this mean for reconciliation? Rachel Ann Snow is an Indigenous legal advocate and joins me on the line right now. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning, Raj. So some people have called the Pope's uh, prior apology for residential schools a non-starter, saying that it wasn't in fact an apology, but just an expression of sorrow. Now that he's going to be in Canada, in Edmonton today, some people are hopeful for uh, a deeper apology, a kind of penance. They say that this trip it goes beyond the apology at the Vatican because he'll be actually visiting uh, with First Nations. So what do you think of all of this? Is it a true step towards reconciliation? Um, well, I think that, first of all, um, we have to understand what reconciliation means. Reconciliation means the acceptance of each other's cultures or identities and the things that have happened for Indigenous people and mainstream society who came, who have come into Canada. But do does mainstream society really understand who the First Nation Indigenous people are? I mean, uh, we can't have reconciliation until we have full disclosure, until we understand one another. So I have problems with the word reconciliation, because uh, in order to have reconciliation, you have to have a really good understanding not a lot of um, Canadians, mainstream Canadians, have that understanding. So that's problem one. Problem two is that uh, Canada paid for the Pope's visit. How mm-hmm. is that showing any kind of remorse, um, again, on behalf of uh, the Roman Catholic Church, when Canada is, in fact, um, paying for them to come here and apologize? Mm-hmm. So you think that that should have been paid for by the Vatican? Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's part of the problem. The the original amount that they had, I I had written that uh, the Pope was, the Roman Catholic Church was to give $20 million, And then somebody corrected me and said, they promised to try to raise $20 million. And I said, well, this is just like the same uh, court case where they kind of, they exonerated themselves out of pain in a Saskatchewan courtroom with some legal wrangling. And that was appealed by the Harper government when uh, when uh, Trudeau got in in 2015. He didn't pursue the appeal. Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, criticism of Trudeau for that 
Um, but also, uh, some people would say that the current federal government has done more for Indigenous relations than any other previous government. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, he actually made a, a separate request for a papal apology in 2017. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's that's very nice, but I don't know what is going on behind the scenes with uh, what uh, Trudeau's intentions are or what he's doing. And again, he's doing this on our behalf. He's doing right. this in the best interest of us. So we're still, he's still treating us like wards of the government and not actually consulting or having, he would have had a series of meetings now to prepare the community. Do you know what they're doing in Muscogee? They're paving the roads so the Pope doesn't have a bumpy ride on otherwise gravel roads, sort of hiding one of the intergenerational or the trauma or the poverty that we live in. That's what's being done up there. Mm. What do you want to see from this visit? Like, what would your ideal be, whether it happens or not? Uh, I think they're, they're, if uh, the Pope is truly uh, going to say something filled with remorse, I think that the obviously the compensation has to follow this. Because I don't think for one moment that the Pope or the Roman Catholic Church is sorry. I think they're sorry they got caught. But I think that if they put forward, you know, the redacted files that they've done with the St. Anne's School, they should have visited um, Kamloops where the, where the 215 bodies were found uh, or 215 bodies are alleged to be. Uh, this is the things that uh, he should have done. But it's been a very carefully crafted uh, trip. So to me, it says, again, control. Rachel, you mentioned St. Anne's there. Now, uh, even a lot of Canadians aren't aware of the fact that St. Anne's, uh, for example, used an electric chair on Indigenous children. Uh, still, so many Canadians aren't aware of the conversion therapies, the forced assimilation, and and a lot of the truths of what happened at residential schools. Do you feel that if the Pope deepened the apology, uh, shared a sincere apology here on the land, that, um, that that could shine more of a light for other non-indigenous Canadians to learn more about the past, I think that I think that is uh, I think that is very a very good observation for mainstream to take note of. But I think you know the Pope would actually have to say we we had uh, you know executed atrocities, you know that come back basically come from the medieval torture times, and we did things like use the electrical chair. We did things like force nutrition experiments and sterilization. Uh, if he actually went into it cold, not a scripted, um, not a scripted pronouncement where he's very careful about liability, I think that would make a difference. You mentioned there that the the mainstream um, could use some more education in this area. It's also in the church's favor, though, isn't it, to restore its reputation as a moral authority in Canada? Well, to build trust. I don't know. You know yeah, I, I guess. Yes, I, I think. Uh, you know, the, the Roman Catholic Church, certainly, I think these incidents are happening globally for the Pope. And I think that uh, the more they own up to their actions and then take positive actions to repay or to compensate or to assist. I mean, the road that's being built by the Canadian government for the Pope to ride along on an Indian reserve kind of sums up what this is for, what, it, what this uh, visit really means. Mm-hmm. Rachel, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Oh, you're very welcome.
Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.